0: Hello, just a quick message from me, Rebecca Radil, and I will be quick, I promise. Just a few things I want to say. I'm really excited to share the new series, Series 2 of Killing Time. There's loads of exciting episodes in store and I just know you're going to love it. Secondly... The reviews have been brilliant. Thank you so much for that. If you haven't done it yet, a five-star review would be much appreciated. And finally, 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 if you would like to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon account, which I bang on about all the time. (laughs) Don't feel pressured, but it would be wonderful. And you can find us on www.patreon.com forward slash killing underscore (sighs) time and breathe. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca O'Deal and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into episode 15, Apollo 1. It's the morning of the 27th of January 1967 and we're at Cape Kennedy's launch complex in Florida where three astronauts are preparing for a routine test of the Apollo command module. Their names are Gus Grissom, Ed White and Roger Chaffee. The test is plagued with issues, from foul smells detected in the breathing oxygen to relentless problems with their communication system. Nevertheless, the test goes ahead. Then, at 6.31 p.m., one of the astronauts, believed to be Grissom, shouts, Fire! It was followed by a scuffling sound, and then another astronaut, believed to be Chaffee, said, We've got a fire in the cockpit. There were screams. Then there was silence. Three men had died within minutes. Grissom was 40, White was 36, and Chaffee was just 31. At the request of their families, their flight was posthumously named Apollo 1. For NASA, the tragedy would have profound consequences. To unpack the story and explore the wider context of the 1960s space race, I speak to TV presenter and author of Ad Astra, an illustrated guide to leaving the planet, Dallas Campbell. Dallas Campbell, thank you for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing?
1: I am doing very well. It's a great pleasure to be here because I get to talk about one of my favourite subjects. So that's always a pleasure.
0: And we're actually, weirdly, we're doing this in the shadow of a recent space expedition, aren't we? So it's perfect timing.
1: It's perfect time. Actually, in fact, last night, I think you're referring to SpaceX, to the launch to the International Space Station, which was historic for lots of reasons we might go into. But yesterday, June the 3rd, was the anniversary of Ed White's Gemini 4 spacewalk. He was the first American to do a spacewalk. So I was having an extra secret space anniversary yesterday.
0: Oh! Uh, Okay. Well, that's good.
1: And in fact, on the front cover of my book, I have that picture of Ed White doing his famous um, spacewalk.
0: He stayed out for longer than he should, didn't he?
1: I think so. He had like a, what was called a space gun, which was a way for him to kind of manoeuvre himself, uh, and that kind of ran out of oxygen, ran out of gas. So he sort of pulled himself in. But yeah, it was a you know, it's an it's fantastic footage. It's worth actually going on the NASA website or the ESA website and having a look at it because the all that beautiful footage from all the Gemini missions. It just looks fantastic. Space looks really different when it's shot in 16 millimetre on proper film. You know, it's just really beautiful and nice and vintage and gorgeous.
0: It's still, I mean, this isn't the topic of, the, of our conversation today, but I just feel like I need to say it blows my mind that this was in the 1960s and we we still got that quality and you can see what people are doing. It's just phenomenal when you think, you know, 60 years before that, the world that we were in was just so different. And, you know, it's crazy.
1: It is crazy, but.
0: But today today we're here to talk about one of the tragic episodes actually of the Apollo programme, and that's the tragedy of Apollo 1. But before we get onto the details, I want to ask you about space and the stars and the moon and <laughs> you know what, space, the world, the universe, and everything. I think humanity has always looked to the stars. We've always looked to, you know, the stars for answers to questions. What happened in the 1960s to make Access to the unknown possible?
1: God, that's such a good question. Yeah, the, the, the 1960s was a very special decade and it's it's interesting because it's easy to look at Apollo 50 years later with kind of rose-colored spectacles and see it for the for the sort of technological marvel that it was. But actually, unless you understand the context, unless you really understand the backstory politically and historically, it, it, it kind of doesn't really make sense. But you're right. As long as humans have been looking up in the stars, we've wanted to go and visit them. And this, I don't know if you went to, there was a fantastic exhibition at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich last year about the moon celebrating the 50th anniversary, but from a much bigger cultural perspective. And actually, the very first thing that you saw when you walked into that exhibition, it was this wonderful very small etching by william blake probably about the size of a of a of an iphone and it was an etching of the moon with a ladder going from the ladder down to the earth and there was a boy or a girl a small small child climbing that ladder with his or her parents standing next to him and the the title was i want i want and that was and that sums the whole thing up we've always dreamt of going to the stars from you know prehistory ancient times we've looked up and imagined the stars you know, as part of our cultural superstition and our religion, but also as destination. We've wondered what it would be like to go there, particularly the moon. We've had all kinds of fanciful imaginings about what that might look like. Bishop Francis Godwin, 1640-something. I can't remember the exact date, but he, he imagined this lunar voyage being pulled to the moon by geese, a bit like James and the Giant Peach, like tying little strings. Oh, wow. I don't know, it's, but it's a really early example of um, early science fiction. It's called The Man in the Moon, Bishop Francis Godwin. And it's the most beautiful story of this Spanish traveller who decided to go to the moon and caught these special geese called Ganza who pulled him up to the moon, but within this story, within the narrative, there's a, a real kind of explanation or exploration of the science of the time. So the science of Copernicus and Galileo. This slight confusion between gravity and electromagnetism is all discussed, and what life might be like on the moon. And so, yeah, it's it's you know we've dreamt about it, and I've always. I've always kind of thought that, the well, the human imagination was built for space travel, but the human body wasn't. The human body requires a little <laughs> bit more engineering, which is kind of where the 1960s comes in. But of course, before you get to the 1960s, you have to, get, you have to kind of put that into context as well. I kind of really think that kind of modern space flight proper begins at the aftermath of the Second World War. You have all the German rocket scientists, people like Hermann Oberth and von Braun, who were obviously building the V2 rocket in order to bomb Britain and, and elsewhere. But it was their rocketry know-how that led to that exploration of the moon. So after the Second World War, all those German rocket scientists that were working on the, on the V2 rocket pro- programme, Pina Monday were all kind of spirited away. Well, some of them were spirited away to America, uh, Operation Paperclip it was called. Some of them went to the Soviet Union. And it was those people, it was those men who worked on that record programme who were developing the rockets that would eventually, or the rockets that would eventually take us to the moon. So out of the conflict of the Second World War comes the Apollo programme.
0: And some of the some of them did indeed have shady pasts. I mean, oh God. von Braun, yeah. and yeah. you know, it was well known, wasn't it, his association with the Nazi and you know the re- regime there.
1: But it was really kind of it was slightly glossed over and overlooked because von Braun, you know, in a way, he was a showman. He really understood that you needed public support in order to make this happen. So von Braun, of course, was friends with people like Walt Disney. So he and Walt Disney and people like Willie Lay, who were the kind of popular writers at the time really brought the idea of space travel and the astronaut to the popular imagination, you know, silver spacesuits and corvettes and all, wonderful space stations. And those early Disney films, Man in Space, that von Braun actually presented was very much part of that. You know, and Kennedy really capitalised on that public will in order to make it happen. Very, very different to the Soviets, of course. Everything was kept in secret. You know, 1957 1958 was the International Geophysical Year, where a whole group of international scientists were studying the Earth and the Sun and the atmosphere. And the culmination of that was the launch of Sputnik in 1957. Of course, that happened in complete secret, but the Soviets knew all about the Americans trying to get Explorer One, their first satellite, up. So they thought, well, you know, bully for them we're just going to get it do it in advance uh without telling anyone and of course 1957 happened sputnik happened suddenly there was this great panic that america had lost the the you know the, the technological high ground if you will and so there was this great you know it was one of the one of the kind of factors i suppose along with the cold war generally that that kind of was the inspiration to or the, the starting gun of the space race if you like
0: yeah, let's get on to uh, to the birth of NASA then. So my <laughs> my knowledge of this period comes primarily from Hollywood films, <laughs> which is where it should do. Well, Hollywood,
1: no, Hollywood films really important actually. You know, we wouldn't have space as we know it. I don't think without Hollywood films.
0: Oh, well, that's good. That's good. So I, I feel, yeah, it, that's fine. And uh, to my shame, the films that I've watched and the ones I've watched recently are watched? not the one, I haven't seen Hidden Figures. I know I probably should have done, uh-huh. but I've watched First Man yeah. and obviously Apollo 13 as well. What did you think of First Man? Did you Have you seen that one?
1: Yeah, I have. Well, from a sort of technical point of view, I, it was re- I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed particularly sort of Armstrong and Scott's Gemini mission, you know, right at the beginning when it was all, they went into yeah. their spin. That was all very exciting. So no, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it. I actually got to hang out with, or I got to meet last year at the Cheltenham Science Festival, uh, Neil Armstrong's son. And I had all kinds of, and I was, you know, I'd just seen the film as well. Right? So I had all these questions because it was a very personal film about him and about his character and about his family mm. and about his you know innermost thoughts. So that was that was quite interesting. So it's not my favourite space film, I'll be honest. Although, actually, I got rid of some of the spacesuits in it, the actual production design, the spacesuits. A guy called Ryan Nagata, who's a, I'm a big fan of, designed some of the props and suits for that movie, and I have one of his suits, so I like it for that reason as well.
0: You've got a spacesuit?
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I do. Okay, well, I, actually, cool. well I, had a, I had a bunch, actually, which I'd borrowed, of Russian spacesuits. What for? Because they're cool. Because, okay. uh, well, partly, actually, when I was a kid, I always thought, you know, like, in, like, stately homes, they've got, like, suits of armour and stuff, like, at the bottom yeah. of the stairs. I thought, actually, as an adult, what would be really cool would be to have a spacesuit. That is, it is
0: cool. But actually,
1: spacesuits are important. You talk about the the public and space and and fiction and 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 actually the, those early spaces particularly the mercury suits so okay so you've got project mercury and then you've got gemini yeah. and then you've got apollo that's the sort of american the, the sort of timeline if you like so the very first humans in space was project mercury and they've got these wonderful silver spacesuits and the fact that they were silver you know the NASA talk all oh, the thermal properties and everything else, but actually the real reason they were silver was because Buck Rogers had a silver spacesuit, and actually mm. suddenly America had this new hero called the astronaut. You know, as part of taking the moral high ground in the Cold War, you know they needed their heroes, and the astronaut was it. So, you know, they needed a cool spacesuit, they needed a, a proper outfit, and the silver spacesuit was it.
0: Okay. You've persuaded me. It's a good idea to have spacesuits. But going back to the people that were on this programme then. So obviously First Man is just, as you said, it's just a very close study of one character, really. But you get people like, and I will mention their names now, Gus Grissom, Ed White and Rogers Chaffee or Chaffee? Chaffee. Chaffee. I always pronounce it Chaffee.
1: I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Okay.
0: Could you tell me a little bit about their backgrounds and and who who they were and how they came to be involved in the um, the Apollo program in particular?
1: Well, Gus Grissom, really interesting character. He particularly so. These are the the, the three astronauts you've mentioned. These are the three astronauts who were tragically killed in the uh, Apollo One fire. Gus Grissom was one of the original Mercury Seven. So when the call went out, you know, in the in the late nineteen fifties, to look for astronauts, because you know, in order to try and catch up with the Soviet Union, who'd just launched Yuri Gagarin into space in 1961, the, the Americans well thought, well, who, what kind of people are we going to be sending into space? And they thought all kinds of ideas, you know, should we be sending kind of acrobats or mountaineers or submariners? And eventually, you know, purely out of speed more than anything else, it was decided that actually what you really need is test pilots, because test pilots by their very nature, are used to dealing with risk. And also, they also have top secret security clearance, military clearance, so they don't have to go through all the faff of that. So in order really to just to hurry the process up, they, you know, test pilots were chosen for good reasons and bad reasons. And, you know, all kinds of people could fly in space. They just didn't really have the time for big casting call, as it were. So test pilots were chosen. So Gus Grisham was one of those original Mercury astronauts, one of the original seven. So as you kind of move through the timeline, those seven were kind of held very much on a on a pedestal as more astronauts would come through the, the program. So Gus Grisham was part of the group one. Ed White, who we mentioned earlier on, he, he wasn't, he was, I think he was group two. I, I can't quite remember. But he wasn't yeah. one of the original Mercury astronauts. But he became... The very first astronaut to do a spacewalk. So, again, we were sort of, we, the the Americans were catching up with the Russians. Alexei Leonov had done his first spacewalk before. And so, my goodness, we have to do a spacewalk now. So, Ed White in Gemini 4, along with um, Jim McDivitt, did the very first spacewalk. And so, he was an experienced astronaut. Uh, Roger Chaffee was the only rookie. So he hadn't been into space, but Gus Grisham and Ed White had. So the three of them together, you had a combination of um, two, well, one astronaut royalty, one very experienced astronaut who'd been up with Gemini, and and a rookie as well. Roger Chaffee hadn't been into space.
0: Okay. And what was the, so what was the aim of Apollo 1? What were they hoping to achieve with this mission?
1: It's a really good question. So Apollo 1, again, you've got to remember it's the white heat of Kennedy saying, we've got to do this by the end of the decade. So 1961, Kennedy had addressed Congress and said, look, we're really falling behind the Russians. You know, this is a really important thing. And, you know, Kennedy really laid on the the narrative of, you know, freedom versus tyranny, all this kind of stuff. So there was real pressure in order to get to the moon by the end of the decade. And suddenly Apollo 1, here we are, it's 1967. So time is marching on. Of course, Kennedy isn't around anymore. Kennedy was assassinated in 63, of course. So it's really Lyndon Johnson who is pushing the the agenda with NASA. So Apollo 1 was the very first time that the, well, it was basically the Apollo command module, the actual capsule the astronauts go in, was being tested out. And it's worth remembering that, NASA itself doesn't build spaceships, okay? So NASA gets other companies to build spaceships like Boeing or McDonnell Douglas or Lockheed or whoever it is. And it was North American Aviation was the company that had built the Apollo 1 command module capsule. And it was being tested out what's called a a plugs out test. So the, the spacecraft had been mated with the rocket itself, the Saturn 1B. So it's on the launch pad, but there's no fuel in the rocket, but it's running on internal power. So all those kind of plugs that you see alongside the kind of launch tower are away. So they're testing out all the comms, testing out all the various systems. So it's a dress rehearsal, really, uh, sort of a month before flight. So the original Apollo 1 was meant to fly in February 1967. So this happened January the 27th, 1967, and everything was going wrong. You know, Gus Grisham was really angry with the, with the way that the project had been going so far, with the way that North American Aviation was building the spacecraft. Because again, there was so much pressure to get it done. Shortcuts had been done. And there was technologically, it was a very different project to something like Gemini. So people were learning stuff from scratch and there were management problems, tech problems. People didn't really know, people were still trying to find stuff out. And because there was such speed, things were done slightly haphazardly, things were done in haste. And there's a very famous picture of Grisham White and Chaffee, black and white, looking at the at the at the capsule, the block one capsule you know, with praying, because they all knew it wasn't very good. They all knew there were problems. When you actually listen to the to the comms of Apollo 1 before the actual incident themselves, you can feel the frustration of stuff just not working, the comms not working. They couldn't even hear themselves. Gus Grisham at one point says, you know, how are we going to get to the moon if we can't even talk between three buildings? There was that real sense of frustration and that sense of corners being cut.
0: But then you would never... I mean, this is just my perhaps naive view, but you would never expect something to go wrong when things are just being tested out. As a, I mean, when there's a mission, of course.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, people, particularly this, no one thought there was a problem. No one thought safety was an issue. And that was partly because, you know, there's no fuel in the rocket. They're not going anywhere. The problem came because, well, there was several, you know, the problem... the several problems. The main sort of technical problem or the reason that really exacerbated was the fact that the the capsule itself was pressurized with 100% oxygen to just above, at, you know, atmospheric pressure at sea level, and that was to, that was to mimic the sort of pressurization that would be in orbit. So pressurization in orbit, you know, is sort of five psi, and that's to kind of match up the pressure against a vacuum. But to do that on Earth, you have to pressurize it much more to just above atmospheric pressure. So I think it was just over 16 psi, and of course they weren't that worried about that. I mean, there had been lots of debate about whether that was a good idea, whether it was safe, but because Mercury and Gemini had used pure one hundred percent oxygen, they weren't really thinking about it, and and they were only really thinking about accidents that might happen in space rather than on the launch pad. But it was that fact that really caused the uh, you know the the, the the real problems, and there had been debate, and you know arguments between NASA and North American aviation about whether this was a good idea. But there were reasons why they did it. It was really to save weight. It, it, it would be much more expensive in terms of designing a, an air system that, that that mixed oxygen plus nitrogen. So it was decided to have a single O2 system on board for, for, the, for that reason. So so again, you know, that caused all kinds of all, all kinds of problems.
0: So I mean anyone that's, you know, studied even GCSE science will know that if you've got that level of oxygen and there's a spark, then you've got problems. Yeah. Could you could you tell me what happened um, in the actual incident?
1: So the three astronauts Grissom, White, Chaffee—they've been put inside the capsule. The, 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 the hatches have been closed. It's a kind of double hatch system, and there were there were engineering faults with the hatch itself, which we might go into. And they were going through comms, so talking to ground control and going through various rehearsal scenarios on the launch pad. So this was a dress rehearsal. So they're in their spacesuits, which are which are have an oxygen hundred percent oxygen going through them, and they're sitting within. The- the capsule, which is pressurised 100% mm-hmm. oxygen as well. And they're talking to the ground, and they're flicking switches and doing all kinds of stuff. And then suddenly, something happens. All we hear in the comms is someone shouting, fire. And the comms are really bad, so nobody can quite hear, nobody's quite know what's going on. But it becomes very evident that something has happened, that a fire has happened inside the capsule. And because it's pressurised and because it's 100% oxygen, of course, everything in that capsule, even if it wouldn't normally catch fire, because of the pressure particularly, everything just goes up. Particularly things like the nylon webbing that's kind of round their seats that they keep things in. The actual flight manuals, which are made of paper and actually... The the real thing that caught fire was Velcro. There was a lot of Velcro in the spacecraft that you know the the, the engineers and the astronauts could keep tools on. And even though you wouldn't think of Velcro being flammable, it that really really exacerbated the fire. And actually, the later the later capsules that were being designed for flight. I mean, this particular one, the actual it was called a Block One, you know, first design capsule, wasn't designed to go to the moon. It was only designed for tech uh, rehearsals in low Earth orbit a lot of that flammable material had already been taken out of the of the spacecraft that were to come but for this particular dress rehearsal no one thought that anything dangerous was going to happen there was nothing you know there was no fuel involved and actually part of the problem as well when the fire happened was that the ground contr- ground staff couldn't get into the capsule because it was so hot there was so much smoke that there were no, and there were no kind of fire extinguishers or not 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 adequate you know fire safety procedures in place there was no smoke masks so it was a, it was a good few minutes before anyone could actually get to the capsule but it but it was a while before that you know as a good sort of over an hour before they could get the bodies out. I mean, the the, the three astronauts, I should say, they didn't burn to death. It was actually asphyxiation, what happened. I mean, the fire melted through the hoses of their spacesuits, and all that, you know, carbon monoxide and, you know, noxious gases was the thing that, that that killed them, although they were, you know, horrifically burnt as well. I mean, you know, their spacesuits were melted uh, to the seats. You know, it was a real, I mean, an absolutely horrific, horrific accident. And you think about, you know, the people involved as well. I mean, all the astronauts knew each other very, very well. They were all incredibly close. Their families were incredibly close. They all lived next next to each other. You know, it was a real tight-knit organisation. And, and particularly because there'd been grumblings and criticisms about the management problems at NASA and and, and North American Aviation, it was an accident waiting to happen it has to be said
0: oh my goodness and what a tragic one as well there was an investigation afterwards wasn't there a very thorough one to try and ascertain what had caused the the fire could you tell me a little bit about that did they find out what the cause was
1: they didn't for a long time i mean the thing is again because there'd been so many shortcuts and and problems in putting the in putting the spacecraft together there was lots of things like lots of bare wires and wires that had been Put in wrongly and and just you know it was a it was a you know this is spacecraft one it's the very first design of any spacecraft and and to be honest I th- I think things like the paperwork hadn't been correct and and all that kind of stuff but yes there was an internal investigation and there was a debate about whether it should be an internal investigation or an external investigation and eventually an internal investigation happened and, you know and it was thought that that would be better because of speed but eventually. You know, a lot of the blame went to the actual contractor, North American Aviation, who put it together. So, and it was thought that it was actually a spark somewhere, right by Gus Grisham's foot, somewhere on the ground. A spark had, had you know, had, had started this fire. And once a, one, you know, once a fire in 100 percent oxygen at 16.7 psi, you know, that's that's not going anywhere. And you know, eventually the, the the pressure even increased more and more. And the thing that happened, the real problem as well, is because the, the the hatch had been designed to open inwards, meant that the pressure inside the capsule mean you couldn't open the door inwards. You know, if it had been designed to open outwards, then you might have been able to escape. But of course, the astronauts were desperately trying to open open the door, and they couldn't because of the pressure inside and things like explosive bolts which would be on a on a flight ready spacecraft hadn't been you know weren't were activated because this was just a dress rehearsal you know it's like any kind of big industrial accident it's never just one thing it's a real you know when you go back and look at it it's everything from bad management to corners cut in safety to technical problems to design faults to people passing the buck to people trying to save money it's a whole catalog of different things that combined went on to you know to cause this this terrible accident
0: and a- afterwards what what were the consequences because we know i mean obviously in retrospect now we know that we you know we did make it to the moon um, but what what was the apollo 1 a sea change moment for the program.
1: Yeah, definitely it was a line in the sand. It was a realization that you know we can't you know we can't do it like this. And I think everybody on board you know realized that. But rather than just pack it in and say okay we, we can't do this, it just I think it probably spurred everyone on to work even harder and to make things better. As a result of that accident, a better spacecraft was built. As a result of that accident, Better spacesuits were built. So, for example, those original uh, spacesuits, I think they were a nylon or a Teflon, you know, material. But they went on to develop this material called Beta Cloth, which is a sort of glass fiber, you know, completely fire-resistant material. So things like that. So everything, as a result, got better. And even the attitude as well. People like Gene Kranz, who you'll know, the very famous mission control guy, who the, the you know the flight controller. There's a lovely quotation. I'm just going to read you this. This is from a book, Roger Lornius, who's a a NASA historian. This is from his book, actually. Gene Kranz gave a speech to his team after the accident that pointed to how the brave men lost their lives and the capsule fire would be memorialised by everybody else redoubling their efforts. And he said, from this day forward, flight control will be known by two words, tough and competent. Tough means we're forever accountable for what we do or what we fail to do, we will never again compromise our responsibilities. Competent means we will never take anything for granted. Mission control will be perfect. When you leave this meeting today, you will go to your office and the first thing you will do will be to write tough and competent on your blackboards. So yeah, I think the fire, tragic as it was, it led to an absolute sea change in attitudes and yeah it was it was a wake-up call basically
0: wow what a quote as well i mean that's yeah that's that's amazing yeah and you
1: know and and it's a testament you know you look at apollo there were no other you know no other astronauts lost their life in apollo you know that was it and from almost a standing start to getting to the moon up to you know apollo 17 you know luckily there were no other you know, nothing—certainly of nothing of that scale.
0: Goodness. Well, let's let's try and let's try and end on a, an even more positive note. Um, and <laughs> I haven't
1: even started. I haven't. Got, <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Well, let's. This be- is like skimming the surface. <laughs> so well, obviously, we're decades on now. Do you think? Yeah. We'll ever go to the moon again?
1: Yeah, I do. It's funny because we've been banging on about it for ages. Here's the thing about Apollo. Apollo happened because of a an. You know, a really unique set of historic events, a really unique political background, and a really unique set of, of characters. You know, Apollo, you know, when you think about what was going on in the 1960s, you had, you know, you had civil riots, you had race, race riots, you had poverty, you had a war in Vietnam, you had a presidential assassination, you know and and yet you had this project that was costing billions and billions of dollars and it went ahead and and it was partly because of all those things that it went ahead we're never going to have an identical situation we never and we probably won't have anything like apollo again but i mean i mean trump has sort of declared uh, and nasa has declared we're going to have boots on the moon by 2024 again. And he wants the, you know, the first woman on the moon by 2024. And then after that, this idea of what we call the gateway, which is to have a kind of, not nothing quite as grand as the International Space Station, but an orbiting space station of sorts that can that we can, you know, go to and from, and then from there, go down to the lunar surface and up and actually get back to the moon. So, yes, we will go back to the moon, I think.
0: Would you, would you go? If you got the chance, would you go?
1: Yes. <laughs> I, I don't want to go any further. Like, the moon's good for me because it's only – it's a couple of days there, right. you know, leap about, jump about for a bit, and then come home. So nice little mini break. Yeah, it's like perfect kind of mini break. Like Mars. Mars is like, oh, Jesus, it's like yeah year there, you know, a year on Mars, a year back. It's too big. It's too massive. But the moon <laughs> – And also, there's something I think going all the way back to our dreaming of going to space. We've always dreamt of standing on the moon and looking back at the Earth. That's always Mm. been that's always kind of featured very heavily in our earliest science fiction, back to back to sort of antiquity. And I I like the idea of standing on the moon, being able to see the Earth. The idea of the Earth completely receding from vision, I think is um, I don't know. I think that'd be quite scary.
0: Well, I think I think that's a perfect note to leave the podcast on, and the, it's been such a pleasure, and it's just amazing to hear your enthusiasm for the project and for the history, and it's it's something that I've been becoming more interested in over recent years, and it's
1: just great. I want people to, you know, when we look at Apollo, it's easy just to see a big rocket and going to the moon. And actually the, the, the really interesting stuff about Apollo, for me anyway, and, and for you as a historian, I, I suspect, is that the historical background, you know, that from the 1960s through, you know, you know, from what was going on in the Soviet Union and America at that time, Kennedy's assassination, Lyndon Johnson really pushing that project forward. That, all that stuff is really meaty and juicy. And I, I love it. It's great.
0: Following the fire, NASA undertook 18 months of redesigns before sending more men into space. The Apollo program would culminate with the lunar landing of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in 1969. The rest, as we know, is history. Gus Grissom and Roger Chaffee were laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery, and Ed White was buried at West Point Cemetery. A memorial plaque at the site of the fire says the following. In memory of those who made the ultimate sacrifice so others could reach for the stars, ad astra, per aspera, a rough road leads to the stars. Godspeed to the crew of Apollo 1.